Welcome to Educate to Elevate, the Home Educators Hub, the podcast dedicated to helping you unlock the full potential of home education. Welcome back to Educate to Elevate, everybody. We are so excited today because we have our very first guest. And well, that's a first step in what's happening here at Home Educator Institute. And we're so excited for you to meet her. I am going to pass the microphone on to Carmen, who will lead us in this conversation and introduce us to our guests this afternoon. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to introduce you to Callie Birch. I don't know why this this happens every once in a while where you meet someone and you feel like you could have just known them, you know, forever. But we have never even met in person. And we know each other maybe a couple months and one other chat into this. Um, we are not of the same generation. These, are, those are my favorite friends, though. I love having <laughs> friends of different generations, as you know. Yes. And I just felt an immediate connection to Callie as I was looking at some of her posts and uh, things that she had to say in a boot camp that we were taking together. So I reached out to her. And uh, she is a literature major, and I was a literature major in college, so I felt immediate connection to her over book love, library love, literature love, and I'm going to hand the mic to her so she can fully introduce herself and tell you a little bit about her journey as a teacher, a teacher mama, and now a homeschooler and an entrepreneur. Yes, it has been quite a journey. Um, so I fell in love with books at a young age. I um, have a very distinct memory of moving from a small town in Tennessee where um, I played outdoors all day long, rode bikes, rode horses, was very adventurous and had just kind of an iconic Americana type of experience. I only lived there for one year, actually. Um, but when I look back at my childhood, it was like this just beautiful, glorious year of being wild and free. And um, then we moved to a small town. Um, and my dad was a doctor, is a doctor, and he opened a practice in a small town in um, East Texas. And when we moved to East Texas, I didn't know anyone. And uh, it was a very different kind of culture than the small town I had been in in Tennessee. And one of the first things that I remember is a girl who was actually very well intended telling me that I needed to stop riding my bike because um, only she essentially told me only the poor kids ride bikes. Yeah. And I loved my bike. My 10 speed bike was this highly valued thing that I had played with all and ridden all over the hills in the little town in Tennessee I'd lived in. And um so I was just trying to figure out who I was and how I fit into this small town. And this was in sixth grade. So mm -hmm. um, a really pivotal year um, at the beginning of middle school. And I have a very distinct memory of discovering Anne of Green Gables that year. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and if you know the story of Anne, she is also an 11 year old girl who doesn't know how to fit in and doesn't have a, a sense of belonging and is seeking that. 
And that's very much what that first book is about. And I devoured it and ended up reading the entire series in a really short period of time. And it was the first time that I felt, even though I had already been a reader and enjoyed reading, that I felt that in a book and through a character that I understood my own life experience more. And I remember writing in my little, I had like a little very goofy little diary. I still have it actually. It still has a little lock and a key. Mm-hmm. I showed it to my daughter. How recently. cute. And um, I wrote this diary entry that was very secret. Like My brothers couldn't read it. I was going to lock it up. And it said, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but how can it be that my best friend is in a book? And I just got chills. I love that. And what I didn't, what I didn't know at the time is that I was joining this great literary tradition of, of young children and of, of just humans who had found themselves in characters in great books instead of in their peer group and instead of in mm-hmm. their their world that they found themselves in. Um, I now know that so many people throughout history have had that similar experience that I was not alone. But in that moment, it it felt almost um, like a like I said like a secret. Um, I didn't know anyone else who had who had experienced something like this. But that started my trajectory of becoming a great reader. And then in high school, my um, family, I said my dad was, I keep on saying was, he is still a doctor. (laughs) He still has a practice. He is a doctor. Um, And we... uh, we moved to Guatemala for a year and did medical missions, um, lived in a small little village on the kind of edge of a rainforest between two dormant volcanoes. And he was actually filling the um, vacancy for a missionary who had been there for, I think it was something like 13 to 15 years, who was just going on furlough for one year. So we knew we were just going for a short period, but it was my sophomore year of high school. So it was still a very fun foundational year of my life. Mm. And so for that one year, I homeschooled. And um, I had had a a very dear friend, actually one of my best friends in the 1990s who homeschooled. So I wasn't scared of it. Um, But I I didn't quite know how to approach it. And my mom was not really wanting to actually school me. So she had gone to her brother, who was a high school science teacher. No, Spanish teacher, sorry, Spanish teacher, and asked him um, what she should do. Um, he helped her find some curriculum. But then he said, the best thing you can do is to pack all of these great books and just let Callie read all year long. And so that's what my mom did. She literally took a book list that he created for her. This was really in the first years of the internet. I don't, we didn't get internet until the removed back. So we didn't have the internet back yet. And uh, she went and bought all of these books, packed a suitcase. And that's what I brought with me to the rainforest in Guatemala. And I have this um, just very powerful memory of being in this tiny little stucco um house that we lived in that had a tin roof and no insulation and a screen door and with banana trees outside and um, parrots that would fly over the head of our heads every day and um, of just curling up in, during these massive rainstorms and hearing the loud rain pelting down on the tin roof 
with a classic book, with a great book. That's amazing. Um, with 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 Pip in or with um, I, I read a lot of Dickens that year. That was a year I fell in love with Dickens. So I, I have a very distinct memory of Great Expectations. Mm. So um, anyway, I came back and uh, at that point was had decided uh, that I loved the great books. I was an AP English my junior, senior of high school, had wonderful English teachers and ended up kind of like winning the English award in my high school and went on to become an English major. That set the trajectory in a, in a major way. And um, so... I majored in English and minored in Bible, which is kind of an interesting combination. And I will say the knowledge of um, biblical allusions has continued to help me <laughs> in analyzing <laughs> literature. Um, and whenever I um, graduated, I was just so excited to teach. But the, the West Texas town I lived in in that time had just consolidated their schools and closed down two middle schools and um, shifted teachers around and had a hiring freeze. And so there was nowhere that I could teach as a, as a young, you know, fresh out of um, teacher training, getting an English major and... Um, and doing the student teaching that was required. Yeah. And I had always wanted to live abroad. And so I, um, when I applied to a position to teach in England and the British schools. And so my first official teaching job was teaching in um, a suburb of London, in Essex, teaching refugee children and Ford factory worker children <laughs> in, oh, wow. um, in a British school and learning all about the British education system. It was a fascinating place. And I could have stayed longer, honestly. I loved it so much. Wow. And um, upon moving back to Dallas, I um, soon after that landed my dream teaching job that I didn't think I was going to get for a decade down the road at an all-girls preparatory school that's um, kind of an institution in Dallas. It's where the Bush daughters went. A lot of um, Mark Cuban's daughters went. It's an all-girls school, and it's kind of where a lot of the who's who's go, um, which mm. means it's very um, it's very academic. It's very rigorous, um, and there are high stakes because of that. Yes. Um, and so while I oh, I was there for seven years, absolutely loved it, but it was also a trial by fire. And at the same time, I was um, completing a master's degree. And uh, I look back at those years with so much fondness. And I feel like those were the years that grew me up and really teach me to read well and to um, and to and to teach well, and I was surrounded yeah. by master teachers. I was the youngest employee in the upper school, and uh, talk about feeling <laughs> imposter <laughs> syndrome and inadequate. And, and so many of my colleagues overwhelmed. So many of my colleagues had PhDs, and I saw them as. A, like think about like Harry Potter. I saw them as like a McGonagall. I think I saw them as very mm -hmm. professor, a Dumbledore, very professorial. And here was mm -hmm. I, this little 25 year old. And I was like, what, what do I have to contribute? Well, I could tell you, I put a lot of hours, blood, sweat and tears into that job. And, um, it was a wonderful experience. And then I had my daughter's and being an all-girls school, it was a place that um, I initially thought that I wanted them to be at. 
my oldest daughter, um, we were, there was actually a, um, what's it called? Like a, it was, I mean, we, you would say like a daycare, but it was like a center mm-hmm. for the um, faculty children who were, that was there on campus, which was awesome because it meant I still got to nurse my babies while I was teaching. It was so great. Um, mm-hmm. And so they were there and my oldest daughter was about to be at the pre-K age and would I, where I'd have to start going through the enrollment process and she wasn't reading yet. And it was a requirement to already read, to be able to enter pre-K at this oh, school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so that changed things for me very quickly. And I started seeing my oldest is highly creative, imaginative, and, and a very advanced reader now. But at the time, she just still wanted to play and draw pictures and dress up. And she wasn't quite ready. And I didn't want to force her to read. And, and I wanted her to love books the way that I did. And mm-hmm. so that started the journey of me considering homeschooling which was something that most of my private school colleagues thought was crazy. <laughs> um, so I ended up um, resigning for that, from that job. It was a long, um, sad goodbye because I was very, uh, honestly enmeshed with that career. I loved it very much. There was some looking back, some unhealth in that, but it was yeah. because I was young and I loved it so much. Um, it felt so committed and so then I started homeschooling my daughters, really mostly my oldest, who was um, pre-K age at that point. And I home educated her through fifth grade. And then my second daughter, who's three years younger, and we loved it. And we had this charming, beautiful, idyllic, kind of wild and free, Charlotte Mason-y type of homeschooling um, experience that they still look back at and say were just wonderful years. And, um, so we had moved to, I'm tr- I said, I was going to say this short and I, I don't know that there's a way to tell this short. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay. I'm going to go real fast now. Um, I moved to Arkansas, um, during those years because my husband at the time, um, he is a professor and, um, he, uh, was offered a professorship at a university in Arkansas. And we loved Arkansas. It's the most beautiful state. Um, if you haven't visited, it is called the natural state for a reason. It's absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful nature there. Um, great hiking trails and lakes and little bitty mountains. They call them mountains. They're not quite mountains, but they but they have nice um, altitude. And um, I threw uh, some, a circumstance that was completely out of my control and that came very much um, by surprise in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, I was put in a situation where I needed to return to my career and where homeschooling was no longer what was best for us. And my daughters needed me to focus on just being mom first. And that was what was best for them. And God opened a door that I didn't even see coming. I hadn't even started applying for jobs. I just started thinking about it. And I had a former colleague from that previous school back in Dallas, who was the department chair of the English department at a great school in Little Rock, Arkansas, and basically invited me and said, hey, I have a position in the high school English department, and I would love to hire you. And so I I, um, got kind of thrust back into my career and my daughters went to that private school with us at that point or with me. And at that point they were in sixth grade and second grade. 
And we were there for three years. And during the course of the time that I was there, um, I was honored to be able to help develop the English department's um, new semester seminar courses for their junior and senior curriculum. And these are a collegiate model, so that they're based on thematic studies instead of seminar course. Sorry, instead of survey courses. And um, I helped develop um, about thirteen courses during that time, and it, and got to teach several of the new courses. And it was an amazing experience. I loved it. Some awesome students, awesome colleagues, and um, really reminded me how much I loved working with high school students and with adolescents. And so fast forward to um, just about a year ago, my daughter came to me. This is my oldest daughter, the one that uh, that um, kind of started it all. And she came to me and said, Mom, my sister, her, her little sister's name is Evelyn. Evelyn and I have been talking and we have decided that we want to homeschool again. And um, I told her, uh, okay, well, that's something we'll have to think about. I'm not sure <laughs> how I'm going to make this happen. I had since become a single mother, and um, I I enjoyed the security that a um, you know paid a, a full time salary and paycheck and the security of the support of a school system was giving us it that had helped a whole lot and been a good support network. Um, mm. But she had this vision for her high school experience that involved a lot of um, her. She's a very talented artist and she wanted to be able to create more and um, she wanted to be able to read more and she wanted to be able to travel. And she had spent a lot of time in my classroom while I was working with these juniors and seniors. She had come um, after school while I was still working with them. And she saw the writing in the wall and she was said, this private school life gives teenagers very little free time. And I want, she said, I, I want something different. And she had a mm. whole rhetorical persuasive argument that she had laid out for me. And so at that point, I really started considering it. And I went to my mom who is a businesswoman who's owned um, a, a business here in Texas for over 25 years and um, said, is there something that I can do? This was, I'm skipping some bit. I, I contemplated a whole lot in the process, but yeah. um, I came to her and I said, <laughs> I, I have this vision for this business. This is something that I can do. And um, my mom crunched the numbers basically for me and said, because um, ultimately I was like, can I replace a teacher's salary with this? Can I do this? And my mom's like, yeah, you can do this. Give it two years. <laughs> mm. So so here I am. And I'm now teaching uh, middle school and high school English classes to homeschool families all over the country. And um, I already have 30 students, which is pretty awesome. Wow. So I'm over halfway there. That's that, amazing. That, thank you for listening yeah. to my story. <laughs> it is we amazing. loved it. Yes. It's such an inspiring story. Um, I think, you know, I, you took me back to those days where I had, as a young girl, had teacher crushes, and I kind of felt a little teacher <laughs> crush coming on for you, Callie, and I might, I might si sign on for one of your classes. Um, they just sound so amazing. Um, but one of the things that, that I really want you to talk about 
is because I've heard a little bit about how you design your courses and I've seen your projects, you know, I follow you on Instagram Mm -hmm. and I see these incredible things that your students are doing. And I think even the fact that your daughter had the discernment and self-knowledge and self-awareness that she had to come and say to you, yes, I really want to spend less time in this traditional setting. I want more time to explore. I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. She already knew herself. She's not out of high school. That is not, that is not common. Mm -hmm. That is not common. And, and what you said about when you went to Guatemala and your uncle telling your mother, the best education is just to read a lot. And you went with a suitcase full of books and Dickens, no less, because even, <laughs> even as an adult, who's a literature major, I still have, I have to reread a page of Dickens. Well, he was sometimes. paid by the word, you know? Yeah, well, <laughs> wow. Well, did he, he's the master of description, but he was that. paid by the word. So he did lean into that. That yeah. explains a lot. <laughs> that does. explains a lot. So, what comes up for me, because I'm immediately thinking about my high schooler. I have a junior in high schooler, junior in high school. And Rita and I have been talking so much about how our children moving forward into a future while we're in an era of huge major transitions yep. and shifts, yep. how they need to carry with them a strong sense of self, meaning they know what their strengths are mm-hmm. and they need to have discernment and wisdom mm-hmm. and a love of learning. And I think that literature mm-hmm. is such a perfect vehicle yeah. for teaching so many deep, deep life skills that are anchored in wisdom and discernment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, something that I've been thinking on, on, you just said so many things. One, we are, uh, <laughs> I'm like, okay, which one do I grab? Um, one, I, I almost feel like we're in a cultural liminal space right now. There's things mm-hmm. are shifting mm-hmm. so much in our world. Uh, something I teach a lot about is the industrial revolution and looking at the shift of literature that occurred in that period. Yes. Um, and mm. I feel like that's happening again. That's a, a, a new version of the, of that kind of revolution. And mm. a lot of people don't have the eyes to see it and are holding on to the past. And um, now, Honoring the past and knowing the past is incredibly important. We don't throw it out at all. But to have some sense of awareness uh, of a a pulse on the culture, the zeitgeist of our time and what is happening around us is also important. Um, that's what the poets historically did. They were Mm -hmm. the the prophets that told us what is really happening around us. And so, um, Okay, so that's one piece. <laughs> the other I, I've been thinking about a lot is the idea that reading uh, reading well is a way of practicing virtue. This is something that's been mm-hmm. on my heart and mind a lot lately. Um, I, I, will, I wanna give shout outs to places and people who have inspired some of these thoughts. And um, this one is, I've been very influenced by Karen Swallow Pryor's work and over this last year, um, she has a book called On Reading Well that I love. 
Um, but she, she has several books that I highly recommend and um, one that just came out that's pretty, that's pretty awesome too that I'm reading right now. Um, but she says that literature embodies virtue first by offering images of virtue in action and second by offering the reader vicarious practice in exercising virtue, which is not the same as actual practice, of course, but is nonetheless a practice by which habits of the mind ways of thinking and perceiving accrue. And um, I just started Jane Eyre with my high schoolers, which is one of my favorite novels. I have a, a, a long history with Jane Eyre. And um, there's this moment, and I don't want to give the plot away for those who have not read it, but there's this moment that is an iconic um, representation of this. If you've as a reader, you've gone through Jane's coming of age story and you've watched her develop and find her own sense of identity. And, um, and it's the often referred to as, um, the development of her soul even. And there's this moment where she is, she's suffering because she is at the most critical crossroads of her life. And she has to make the hardest decision she's had to make in her life. And she has lived a difficult life up to that point. And she says, I'm going to read this. I care for myself. The more solitary, and that's a response to something she was reflecting on earlier, the more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad, as in crazy. Um, as I am now, she says, laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent are they, and violent they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? And wow. at that moment, she makes this incredibly difficult decision. And I will tell you, because I've taught it, I've taught this novel several times that students struggle with agreeing with her decision. Mm. Sometimes they don't. And this is this, this ability to like practice virtue with her and to experience um, what it's like then to walk through hard decisions. Um, yeah. And so, but I do want to kind of say a caveat because I think sometimes people will think and will confuse a story as being moral only if it is right. moralizing. And here's right. the deal that, that one moment I just gave as an example is a moment of Jane pursuing virtue, but you've walked through her life up into this point. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these few moments I will say uh, later writer Virginia Woolf even critiqued Charlotte Bronte for this and said she put a little bit too much of herself in it in these moments where it seemed like she was preaching. Um, but it's important to say, to, to kind of specify that moralizing is not the same thing. And actually yes. moral, stories that moralize often are not very good stories mm -hmm. um, because they will focus more on didactic instruction instead of the cathartic experience and catharsis. Mm -hmm. And catharsis, the idea goes back to Aristotle's poetics and the Greek tragedies. And it's the belief that 
literature trains our emotions, like really well-crafted plots and um, iconically the tragic hero and going through the tragic process with the tragic hero will train our emotions by arousing them and then resolving them through the plot mm. and through the experience of the tragedy. And um, that through that, our, um, we become more virtuous because we experience um, the, the fall of, of the flawed, tragic hero. And a really good example of that um, that I've recently experienced, this is, uh, I mean, I teach Macbeth all the time. That's one of my favorite um, tragedies. You can definitely do that with Macbeth. But one that my students latch onto that's not Shakespeare or a play, but is Frankenstein. So I've taught Frankenstein several times. Um, it's one of those books that sometimes is hard to get into at the beginning with students, but once they get into it, they can become very hooked because it is a, quite a compelling story. Um, and they hate Victor. <laughs> they follow Victor's trajectory and every bad decision he makes that is born <laughs> out of his own selfishness, um, mm. they get more and more and more angry at him and develop more and more compassion for the creature. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's part of what Mary Shelley was doing. And uh, it's valuable in that, like, one of the things you see with Victor is that as he go, goes more into his selfish desire for glory, that's what his pursuit is, the pursuit of godlike glory, that he, um, he isolates himself. He self-isolates and he builds a wall around himself. He pushes away friends and family. Even They even kind of try to seek him out and like, what's going on? Why aren't you responding to our letters? Why are you ignoring us? And um, he pushes them away. And so one of the themes that we talk about quite a bit with Frankenstein is self-isolation. And um, I will tell you, that was a really valuable thing coming out of the pandemic. Mm. And so many of these students, and even in the um, virtual wor world that so many yes. teenagers yes. live in now, it is an incredibly relevant theme. And so while they're watching Victor destroy his life and his family's life through his um, selfish ambition and his self-isolation, this resonates. This says something yes, to them. Absolutely. And so mm. it's not necessarily always watching a moral character doing the right thing. Sometimes right. the most effective thing is to see someone totally fall, <laughs> to choose the wrong path, and for us to watch that destruction um, and, and recognize that that is not the path and the choice that we want for our own life. Because at the end of the day, we are building our own stories. And, mm. you know, we, we get... We have some, some circumstances that are handed to us that we have no control or agency over. And then we choose what we're going to do with those circumstances, right? Yeah. Yes. So What stood out to mm -hmm. me, and, and I'm going to um, hand the mic off to Rita for a little bit, but what really jumped out at me because of some circumstances that I recently lived with my junior in high school <laughs> is when you said, you know, walking your students through the process of making hard decisions. And that resonated with me so greatly because literally the road I'm traveling is even approaching the road to a decision-making process with mm. this child sometimes, <laughs> you know? So that really stood out to me. And at the same time, the fact that 
literature is such a powerful vehicle, but the importance of having the teacher, the importance of having the teacher. And certainly all of our greatest poets have had teachers and, and mentors. But you said so many things again that that I know Rita and I both connect with going all the way back to Anne of Green Gables. Mm-hmm. So Rita, I'm going to give you some time just to respond to what Kelly's been talking about so far. Yeah, very quickly, because I want to go back to you, Kelly. Really, this, is, <laughs> this has been so interesting. But to also, like Carmen said, taking me back to my own childhood, even before my adolescent years, I remember one of those first iconic books for me was Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and uh, Judy Bloom. And this was one of those books that at the time, I mean, I'm talking like very early 1970s, was a little controversial. Right. Yeah. You know, my Wasn't mom it a kind of book at some point. It was. Yeah. Uh-huh. And my mother had, you know, like questioned herself whether she should let me read mm-hmm. it or not mm-hmm. and whatnot. But it takes me to going back to what you were saying right now around virtue and around making hard decisions. For me, prior to that is learning to ask a lot of questions, questions and learning to ask uh, the right questions. You are speaking my language. And so <laughs> that is where yes. for me, you know, mm-hmm. are you there, God? It's mm-hmm. me, Margaret, mm-hmm. was a catalyst to being okay with questioning certain things that I wasn't okay with even at nine or 10 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to have the freedom. I mean, I had the blessing of having an incredibly intellectual father mm-hmm. who loved the Socratic you know, and the debate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so coming to him with questions was never about being put down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even when it came to my faith, or questioning, not his authority, but his rules. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes it was like, okay, what? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And being able to have those conversations with dad, and ask the questions without being afraid of feeling that I shouldn't be questioning this right. or that. And right. for me, literature was about that. My my next book, I love Jane Eyre as well, mm-hmm. Pride and Pre- Prejudice, mm-hmm. you know, all the classics. But my oldest daughter's name is Elizabeth. Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. But I remember even Carmen and I read this book almost together because I took it with it with me for a vacation that Carmen and I took together when we were just teenagers. I was, I think, 15. I don't know. I don't remember. 14 when I read God Gone with the Wind. Wow. And this was because I had seen the movie and Mm -hmm. I was absolutely sure that the movie was missing something. Mm -hmm. It just didn't quite click Mm -hmm. with me. And so I'm like, ah, no, I have to read Mm -hmm. the book. And let me tell you, Mm-hmm. Don't ever watch the movie. Read the book. <laughs> it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I finished reading that and then passed it on to Carmen in that same vacation. But it was also about asking questions, mm-hmm. uh, especially a question of, was this woman a bad woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was she evil mm-hmm. or was she making decisions mm-hmm. of survival? Mm-hmm. And those questions, I mean, it's it's just... I'm getting chills right now because that is what literature was for me Mm. Um, because I was such a critical thinker Mm -hmm. and I needed a space 
you know, to be able to bring those questions in a generation that didn't ask any questions. We just did what we were told to do. Mm -hmm. And so it was going against. mm -hmm. Especially in Mexican culture, Mm -hmm. I was going to say, Mm you know, especially as a female in Mexican Mm -hmm. culture. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it was going against the rules to read all these books and start just opening my mind to it's okay to Mm -hmm. ask the questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. That bring Kelly, do you have a Mm -hmm. response to that before I go on to our next? Yes. Yeah. Several thoughts. Go ahead. One is um, when you, I'm going to go back to Carmen, I think mentioned um, having a teacher. Having a um, so actually that is going back to Frankenstein, which is not something I was like intending to talk about much, but um, that is actually one of the themes of Frankenstein is the the role of the mentor in what happens when there's a void of education. I think this is something that young Mary Shelley was really contemplating. Um, this is going to be uh, coming out of uh, her influence or being having read um, Enlightenment writers and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and a lot of the um, intellectuals of her time period that were writing about education. And um, anyway, so part of the creature's trajectory is that he is... um, he himself doesn't have a mentor, that he is truly an autodidact. He learns mm-hmm. in isolation and he learns to read in a kind of uh, interesting circumstance. Um, he is taught to read through kind of a veer- peering into another person's reading lessons, essentially. Um, but then he he reads books, which you know, for a book lover like me, that's I'm like, that's awesome. Um, something I'm contemplating and I and I have contemplated as reading um, Frankenstein and looking at the character of the creature, um, and I've written on this some as well, is that his misinterpretation of books is part of what sets him towards darkness because he reads Paradise Lost and he sees himself as the Satan character in Paradise Lost. And Mm -hmm. because of that, he starts making choices through that filter. And if you look at um, the three books that he reads and how he interprets the world through, these were were kind of classic great books of their period. Um, They're just slightly warped in his perspective because he had no one to help teach him. He did read them Mm -hmm. and he learned from them. He's incredibly bright. Um, But they, they... how they cause him not cause, but they they give him a lens through which he sees himself through a false identity, and I think yeah. that's a very interesting thing to present. So that's about being a teacher. I think Mary Shelley um, is exploring the need for a mentor teacher. Um, yes, and I think that's interesting. Yes, um, every character uh, at some point either abandons their teachers or doesn't have a teacher. Robert Walton at the beginning of the book even like bemoans the fact that he had no teacher. So this is something mm. that's a thing. Um, another thing that you let's see, let's see if I can remember what you said. There was after that we talked about. Um, well, remind me. Because there was a there was something I was thinking about that was from that. I may just have to change topics and hope that I come back to it. Um, we might have to have a follow up podcast uh, at some point in the can. future as well. Uh, uh, Rita, it was something you said. Um, oh, the questions. 
the questions. That's it. Questions. I just have to get my mind back there. That's it. Um, that uh, something that I feel very strongly about is leading um, students in learning how to ask good questions of literature, um, because it's one of the safe places, like you said, Rita. It's one of the safe places mm-hmm. for them to, be able to do that. There's not a black or or white right or wrong, um, and they're coming, like, especially like in a a worldview where there is so much they feel like they can get wrong and they don't mm-hmm. have much of a often struggle with even a moral boring, uh, uh, having a, what's what I'm looking for? Like a, a true North, a moral compass. Moral compass. Yeah. Um, they, they often enjoy feeling like there's safety in just asking questions instead of getting everything right. Yes. And, yes. And, and exploring these ideas and then starting to allow the ideas to shape their perspective on things. And so um, something that I often teach students is um, the hierarchy of questions and how um, certain questions build upon others and um, instead of giving them discussion questions that they will respond to, I ask them to create their own questions. And then we love that questions to um, guide our Socratic seminars. And I, I feel like being empowered with um, the ability to bring their own ideas and questions to discussion can be something that especially teenagers can really um feel a sense of safety, but also, um, dignity in like mm, their ideas yes. and their mm-hmm. perspectives matter. And therefore it's no longer the teacher, the sage on the stage telling them what is right and what is wrong, but it is, um, an, a, an open dialogue where we are entering into, you know, the, the classical tradition we call it the great conversation and that yes. they're, they're tapping into ideas and thoughts that really matter, but they're bringing their 21st century perspective in their own journeys to this discussion. And that really matters. Yeah. It does. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about, you know, the great conversation and that's a perfect segue. The next thing I wanted to touch on, and we're kind of already talking about it is the power of literature to be a vehicle to develop communication skills. Mm-hmm those soft skills, really connecting with other people. And even just like just you, you were just talking about and Rita was talking about learning that it's not just okay to ask questions, mm-hmm. that it's crucial for them to learn how to ask questions and mm-hmm. to be able to determine what are the questions that I should be uh, asking. Yes. Because there is no mm-hmm. moral compass in our right. society right now. Mm-hmm. Everybody has their own compass, mm-hmm. right? And yes. because our children are receiving so much more input constantly, unless we're really trying to filter that out somehow, which even if we are, it's still so constant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the brain is such an amazing organ and is able to process it at such a rate that things that they're processing, they're not even aware mm-hmm. that they're processing and internalizing those things. Yeah. So I think it's really important for us to talk about literature as a vehicle for them to develop these skills that will serve them so well in the future. Mm-hmm. One is really connecting with other human beings, Mm -hmm. the other, those soft skills, um, 
emotional intelligence, let's say, you know, and then communication skills. Mm. Every one of those. Yes. Um, Reading well requires us to slow down and listen. I think that is something that is so (laughs) undervalued in our current day. And um, to, to pay attention to the text on the page um, well and attentively in the way I expect my students to, where we're talking about, um, you know, imagery. We're talking about one particular word in a sentence and that word choice. Um, it, and then we also are paying attention to, so the text, but also the context and interpreting it accurately based on what was happening within that time and place. Um, and knowing historical context, knowing a little bit about the author's biography, bringing these things into our understanding. This is especially once we get into classics. Um, It's just almost impossible to read Jane Austen if you don't know a little bit about the Enlightenment. It's Mm -hmm. very difficult to understand Frankenstein or the Brontes if you don't understand the Romantic movement. And so um, there's having just a little bit of context is allowing us to interpret well, but that all requires paying attention to detail. And then Mm -hmm. whenever um, we get into Socratic seminars and literary discussion, acknowledging this, this is one of my favorite aspects of literature is that I often, I often tell students there's not just one right answer. Now, are there Mm -hmm. bad interpretations or, um, false interpretations. Sure. They're usually made by students who didn't read well or didn't read at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they read carefully, then, and I, t- and I tell them that, like, if you read and you did the due diligence of giving this book the time and energy that it requires of you, I, I don't think that kind of stuff is going to happen. So mm. what we really are doing is bringing ourselves to the text and um, bringing our imagination to the text so that we can fully immerse ourselves in it, into that world, into that character, into that story. And it is fascinating to see in discussion with other students how we all have different takeaways. And there, and there are all right. They're all excellent. And they, uh, it's so fun to see how, you know, one student maybe had a really personal experience with a moment or a scene or a character, and it really spoke to them in their life and things that they're dealing with. Whereas another one maybe had a much more worldview kind of experience, more just like global, like this is what they saw. Um, And another one had a very uh, intellectual or aesthetic or artistic experience where they noticed something creatively in the writing or structurally Mm. in the writing that was um, amazing to them that inspired them and we bring all of that to the table and they're all right and then we have this discourse of um of being able to have differing points of view and respecting each other in that and also learning to listen well to our fellow humans in the room mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and respecting their point of view and their perspective and uh, a Socratic seminar, they they have, I tell them this at the beginning the, of the first time one that we do together, and I often have to remind them as they're getting used to the Socratic seminar method, that 
it, they are the ones who are in charge of the success of the seminar. And the tools that they bring to it are prepared reading, mm -hmm. good questions, and mm -hmm. listening to each other listening mm -hmm. well to each other. The person who's just sitting there waiting for their thing to say is not yes. going to contribute well to their conversation because they're not mm -hmm. listening to what is happening beforehand. And a good conversation is organic and ebbs and flows. Ideally in a good Socratic seminar, I don't have to call on anyone. There's no raised hands. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, yeah, that, that's that. the first thing that comes to mind for me based on your question. That really resonates because when you're able to listen with an open heart and an open mind, that's when you're truly connecting yeah. and the buzz, the synergy of collaboration really mm -hmm. starts to happen mm -hmm. because you don't just learn to respect what that other person saw in the piece it's actually teaching you something and opening your eyes to a different perspective and helping you appreciate that as well. And I love that because, you know, the reason that our logo is the honeybee is because it's such a collaborative society and everybody working together. I and them. so I, I, I love how, talking about the great conversation, the Socratic seminar, collaborative conversations around important topics in literature mm -hmm. is so greatly contrasted with someone sitting alone mm -hmm. in their home, mm -hmm. scrolling through social media feeds. That goes back to that isolation thing too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and staying in our little echo chambers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But also I think Carmen, I I'm love listening to this whole concept that you've put together for your classes, Kelly, because mm -hmm. the reality is home education is shifting greatly. And one of the most important pieces that we continue to bring to the conversation here at Home Educator Institute is the importance of peer-to-peer -peer collaboration and conversation for deep learning. And homeschooling really used to be very uh, a space of isolation where a yes. high schooler is reading the novel and answering comprehension questions yep. and mm -hmm. writing an essay about it because who who else am I going to talk to about this? So what right. you're bringing to the table is an opportunity using technology mm -hmm. to bring a group of kids together to share, have peer collaboration, conversation, and be able to include this innovative way of teaching into the homeschooling spectrum, which I think will take homeschooling to a whole other level that it didn't used to have. And that's what's exciting to us here at Home Educator yes. Institute is just paying attention to what amazing teachers that are leaving the system yeah. aside mm -hmm. to be able to offer alternatives to these kids mm -hmm. that are really in desperate need of coming together to continue learning together. Mm -hmm. So the parent doesn't have to feel like you have to be the expert of everything. I have mm -hmm. to be able to teach everything totally. or... I'm just going to put my kid in front of a computer to do online learning, mm -hmm. but without the aspect of mm -hmm. a professional 
incredibly dynamic teacher like you to bring everything together. And that's what Home Educator Institute is all about, is about discovering what's out there available for home educator parents to seek to enhance the experience their children are having to develop this love of learning and to also make sure that they're getting the education that will follow them to a life of adult success. And that's what we're all about here. And so we're so, so glad Mm. that you're a part of that journey with us. Thank you. Mm. Well, I have one, I had one last question, but I think we already addressed (laughs) it, sort of a conversation started. And it was talking specifically about literature as an art that helps us learn who we are mm-hmm. and also to be able to connect with others. Mm-hmm. I, I love how your, your little anecdote about your daughter perfectly illustrates mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yes. She really knew herself at such a long, uh, uh, such a young age. Sorry. Um, and, and I think that it's because of, her journey to book love that you were so intentional about mm-hmm. making sure she had that by allowing her that extra time, but not by not pushing her into reading as a skill, but allowing her to develop as a person and, and all of that. Uh, one thing I did, Amazing. Go ahead. I was go just going to say is that I, knowing she couldn't, she wasn't reading yet, but knowing she's super bright, it's going to happen when it happens. Mm. Um, I really um, leaned into reading aloud to her as a young child. And we did tons of reading aloud, read aloud time every single day. That was foundational to our homeschooling when she was young. Mm. So, uh, um, and then, you know, before I knew it, she was reading beautifully. And now is, you know, like reading definitely at an adult level, very advanced reader now. Mm -hmm. So. That's just, I know I needed people to encourage me when I, she was five and still not um, doing any pre-reading that, yeah. um, that sometimes they just, they just yeah. need another year. They just need another, yes. just a little bit more time to just be a kid. Let her, let her be a kid. Let her have it. And then just, just um, plant the seeds of the love of story within her. And I had some very wise people speak that into me when I was coming from a culture of that was, like I said, very rigorous and like we need to be reading in pre-K, you know. And so it was hard to push out those voices of something's wrong. Should I get her tested for dyslexia? Should I? Is there something wrong? And to say, nope, I'm just going to lean into childhood. Give it time. Good books Mm. and give it time. Mm-hmm. And and I know there are people who get to seven, eight and realize they do need to get tested for something. And there might be some sort of learning difference or something like that. But um, I've heard many, many stories of children who just needed another year. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's determined at seven or eight, mm-hmm. not four mm-hmm. and five. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly, mm. I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to let everybody know where they can contact <laughs> you, where they can follow you, where they can find you. Oh, you're so sweet. Yes. Thank you. This has been such a great conversation, ladies. Thank it you. Has. Well, and I, I say that, but it sounds like I'm complimenting myself. Because I'm <laughs> of course. <laughs> thank, thank you for letting me talk so much and share my story. Um, 
Okay, so the um, name of my um, education business is Storyweaver Co. Because um, I believe that all of our stories are interwoven and connected mm-hmm. to each other. And um, my goal is to help students find their voices and join them with a great conversation of ideas and great literature. And so um, Storyweaver Co. on Instagram is the main place social media wise. I do have a Facebook, but I don't don't do a whole lot there. Um, but I love Instagram. And then my website is storyweaverco.com. And um, kind of what I've got going, um, coming ahead, I've got several projects I'm working on. I'm so excited about. Um, I'm about to launch my summer classes that will be in July and they will be all virtual and I'm going to be doing some creative writing workshops and um, a book club type class that's a little bit looser than what um, my actual courses are. And then also a college application essay boot camp for um, high school juniors. So that's something that I've worked on a lot in the past and love working with students and helping tell their stories well so that um, college admissions counselor, counselors will pay attention to them. <laughs> and uh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's a big thing. It's a thing in that world. Um, and then um, I have an e-course that I'm working on that I'm so excited about. It's going to be called The Art of Reading. And I actually will be using Jane Eyre's core book that we're going to be working mm. through. And it will be uh, available later this spring. And it is for um, homeschool. Actually, I shouldn't even say homeschoolers because it really is for anyone who wants it to use it. It's both for adults and for um if, if it was a homeschool high schooler who would want to use it as curriculum, I'm designing it so that it could be used for both. So I'm very that's, that's amazing. Fantastic. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's Rita, great. I'm going to hand it over to you to wrap things up. And I hope that Callie will make time to join us again, because I've already thought about six or seven different topics <laughs> that I would love to talk, talk with her about awesome. here at our podcast. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining our conversation. We were really excited to have you on and it has paid off totally. Again, I also would like you to return sooner rather than later. And I want to thank our audience. Thank you for listening today. We hope that this conversation was enriching to you. Reach out to Callie if these themes really excite you. And we will see you next week. Thank you for joining Home Educator Institute and the Educate to Elevate podcast. See you soon. Thanks for joining the conversation. Please comment, like, and share if you're as passionate as us when it comes to elevating and educating children and youth. Want to reach us? Connect on social at Home Educator Institute.